The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Welcome back for another week of interesting local news. First up, I'll be talking about the issue of affordable housing that's facing the Raleigh area as the city continues to expand at a rapid pace. After that, stick with us to hear Marissa's slightly abridged documentary about the DIY music venue scene in Raleigh followed by a brief discussion on the current state of the scene since the original airing of the documentary. Then after the update, we'll continue with discussion about a variety of local tidbits, including bicycle registration at NCSU becoming mandatory and special forces training in select NC counties. That's all coming up within the hour, so stay tuned. Wake County is growing fast. In fact, according to USA Today, Raleigh is the ninth fastest growing city in the country. Our population change from 2016 to 2017 was plus 17.4% and around 60 people moved to the area every day. If you've been around Raleigh for the past five years, this isn't surprising. It seems like everywhere you turn around the triangle, a trendy new apartment complex is springing up overnight. The warehouse district is teeming with new life since businesses and restaurants have moved into the renovated spaces, and major businesses like Amazon are looking to move into the area. It's wonderful that so many different people are calling Wake County their home, but with a rising population comes new issues. One of the most pressing issues discussed around the triangle today is affordable housing. Affordable housing, by definition, is housing units that are affordable by the section of society whose income is below the median household income. And with all the new development, not only in Raleigh, but in Cary, Holly Springs, Nightdale, Fuquay-Varina, Morrisville, and other surrounding towns, it's becoming more scarce by the day. It's always been an issue for low-income residents of Raleigh, but now it's affecting the median income workers too, like police officers and teachers, elderly people, disabled people, single-parent families, and recent graduates. Housing prices are rising in Raleigh, but income is not. According to an article published earlier this year in the News and Observer, only the top 90 percentile of workers in Wake County are making more money, while the bottom 10% are experiencing a 2.6% decrease in wages. Lower-income individuals who work in Raleigh cannot afford to live in Raleigh and are being pushed out increasingly far away. Obviously, this is a multifaceted issue. I attended the Affordable Housing Policy Forum at the Raleigh Democratic Building to learn more about the ongoing crisis in Wake County. The forum consisted of town council members from various cities in Wake County, district representatives, and other prominent political figures, and even everyday people like me. The goal was to come together to address the housing issue in Wake County and to work out a solution. For those of you interested, this is an ongoing forum and will be happening again in the future. I was able to get a few quotes from city council members from around Wake County. Here's Steph Mendel, representative of District E. 
Well, affordable housing was a huge issue in the last city council campaign. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that it really runs the gamut um, to helping people who really, who are homeless, to helping um, maybe older people who are in danger of losing their homes because of gentrification. And I think we need to look at all aspects of that. And we need to look, we need help from our uh, state legislators so that to allow municipalities to do things that will help us provide more affordable housing for more of our citizens. Here's what Mayor T.J. Colley of Morrisville had to say on the subject. Our council in Morrisville is looking to address what affordable housing will mean to our community. We, that's a policy discussion that we haven't yet had. I personally feel that affordable housing is the fact that you can have teachers and police officers and firefighters living within the town that they work in. I think that's really important to build community. So that would be my goal in the long term. Um, and it, but like I said, it means different things to different people. What I learned from this forum is that so many different problems affect affordable housing in our county. The crisis is increased by lack of public transportation, increasing gentrification, and construction permit laws in the county. In short, it's not a problem that can be fixed overnight. As I mentioned, gentrification is happening across Raleigh. Just think of the modern houses on Newburn Avenue or the new expensive houses springing up all around South Saunders Street. While it's great in theory that Raleigh is growing into a larger city and becoming more modern, these new apartment complexes are pushing people out of their homes who have lived there for generations and have nowhere else to go. These new housing complexes are expensive too. The NC Housing Coalition found that the average apartment in Raleigh charges $900 for rent, while the average amount citizens can pay is $750. Unfortunately, it seems that Wake County has prioritized expansion and lavish apartment buildings over economic diversity, and it's taken its toll on the city. The number of homeless people in the county increased in 2017, and there are currently 3,465 homeless students in Wake County Public Schools, according to the News & Observer. This is directly tied to the lack of affordable housing in Wake County. Another important factor discussed during the forum was large corporations moving to Raleigh, like the proposed Amazon or Apple headquarters. If Amazon were to move to Raleigh, it would bring more people, more growth, and more expensive housing. Going into the future, Raleigh city leaders have a lot to think about. Like it or not, Raleigh is changing every day. We just need to make sure that Raleigh is changing in the best interests of all citizens not just the affluent ones. This has been Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Last October, while walking along a sidewalk somewhere in Philadelphia, my friend told me about her experiences touring with her band during the previous summer. The band she toured in is from Raleigh and they embarked on a multi-state tour. I was intrigued by how connected her band was to other similar ones from across the country. That same night, we attended a house show put on by some of her friends from the summer tour and it made me wonder how local acts can book shows around the country and what connections are necessary to do so. I had already been playing with the idea of creating an audio documentary, so the inspiration hit me like a thunderbolt. I should investigate how connections are made in local, do-it-yourself, or DIY music scenes, specifically my own in Raleigh. Raleigh is a small, fast-growing city of 451,000 residents. I have lived in Raleigh since 2000, and 
and I'd be confident in saying I know the city in and out. However, I wasn't really aware of the music scene until I came to college at NC State and joined the radio station, 88.1 WKNC. It's quite odd to have lived somewhere your entire life, yet know nothing about one super important and special facet of your city. Below the surface, Raleigh has a great music scene. While I have primarily been to indie rock shows, Raleigh also boasts a pretty good punk hardcore scene, from what I've heard, and the beginnings of a new hip-hop scene. It's not really surprising, given Raleigh's proximity to seven universities and colleges. Lots of young, passionate people with time and some disposable income. While I loved going to shows at venues around the Raleigh area, there's something rewarding about cultivating artists just like you and your friends. While each level of music has its own perks, you just don't build the same relationships at big-name national concerts that you make going to a friend's house venue each weekend. You generally don't get to meet people traveling from across the country, and you're not exposed to new types of music when you've heard of every name on the bill. In addition to just falling in love with indie and DIY in general, these sentiments are what inspired me to create this documentary. I think it's important to look at all of the facets of DIY music and culture. Obviously, DIY is not a new concept. The anti-consumerism of the hippies and the punk rock kids in the late 60s and 70s helped launch the idea, and it gained strength in the 90s and is still holding strong today with the rise of the internet. But to explore these early connections, we first have to take a trip back to 1970s Manchester, England. June 4th, 1976. The Sex Pistols are playing a show at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester, which would reignite the Manchester scene and become one of the most influential gigs in history. It may seem absurd that one performance could be so influential, but many future key actors were present at the show. Punk and post-punk originated in Manchester at a desolate time. The working class was constantly haunted by labor strikes and unemployment. Housing was dilapidated and was constantly being knocked down to try and mitigate the widespread poverty. Violence was the rule, and fights broke out in almost any large public gathering. But out of this social headache, punk was born. The punk movement in the 1970s was intriguing because it was a scene that was actualized because of intercommunity connections. To clarify, what I mean here is that punk is a genre that relied heavily on peer influence to take off. After the so-called gig that changed the world, everyone in and around Manchester was picking up a guitar and starting a post-punk band. Due to Manchester's contempt for their movement, the punks formed small, close-knit communities. They built off each other, often influencing and guiding other bands. For example, the Buzzcocks mentored Joy Division, and in turn, Joy Division mentored lesser-known bands like Section 25. In this way, a vast web of necessary connections began to form throughout Manchester and the rest of England. Without the common experiences that the early punks shared, the Manchester community, much less the world punk movement, could not have happened. Luckily, I had a lot to work with within our little local scene. 88.1 WKNC, North Carolina State University's college radio station, alone has a plethora of connections and students involved in the local music domain as well as musicians and show hosts alike. In the vicinity of NC State, there are three active house show venues, and two-thirds of them are owned by WKNC DJs. To me, the most obvious place to start was to interview bands and DIY venue owners to find out how the behind-the-scenes action works in Raleigh. I decided to contact the owners of the venue of the first house show I ever attended, 
Matt Brown, and David F. Smith, who currently run and book shows for the Radio Shack. The Radio Shack is a deceptively large house somewhere on the outskirts of NC State. They have been running shows for the past few years and have had some pretty impressive lineups. I attended my first house show at Radio Shack one fateful October night in 2015, and it forever changed my outlook on live music. Until you've been to a house show, music is completely different and much more impersonal. The room where the band plays is actually super tiny. Everyone crowds around the musicians under a soft red light while some old VHS tape plays on the screen behind the band, accompanying their music in an odd but perfect way. Radio Shack is incredibly well run. They consistently have shows with different lineups, most of the time from out of state. How do they do it? How do they make the connections necessary to run a successful house show venue? My name is Matthew Brown. I've been at WKNC in some sort of capacity for the last, like, five years? Five years. Yeah, uh, last year I was the general manager, and uh, this year I've been uh, keeping it fairly low, helping put on shows at my house. Oh, we're called the Radio Shack. So I first got involved in WKNC mostly because it's the station that I listened to in high school. So a couple years back, I kind of got involved a little bit with running some sound at uh, my friend Walt's place uh, when no one else could. And so that was kind of my first dip into it, I suppose. But after a while, that place got shut down. They kind of stopped doing shows. And so we were kind of at this point where no one was having uh, uh, house shows in Raleigh, or at least no one that like the college kids knew. And so I was like, okay, like, man, this was like one of the best things about like my first couple years at NC State. Just all that stuff uh, that you don't get from like a normal show. And so I got a group of folks together and uh, we were like, okay, we're going to get a house, going to, you know, have shows all the time. Then Matt walked me through his booking process. He told me that usually a touring band reaches out to a space that a friend has played at or through the people he calls super nodes. So normally there's a touring band that'll reach out uh, and they'll either hear about us through friends. Usually it's someone else who's played the house or they're like just a few people who seem to know like everyone on Facebook. Have you heard like five degrees of Kevin Bacon or something? Yeah, these are like they're just a couple folks who are like super nodes who are really good at connecting people together on Facebook. So usually it just starts with a, a Facebook message and they'll be like, hey, we're going to be in Raleigh like on, you know, November 12th. Uh, here's a link to my band camp. Here's a, a link to a noisy article about me. Normally, like I'll, I'll just check it out and, you know, and, you know, no, normally everyone's all good with it. Uh, and so at that point, I'll confirm it with the person messaging me on Facebook and I'll start looking for local folks to uh, be at the beginning of the bill. One of the coolest things, in my opinion, that Matt has done is help to create offshoot venues of the Radio Shack. What I mean by offshoot is that the Radio Shack will often book shows for friends' house spaces. This is how Shrieking Shack were started. As I expected, the internet is vital to today's underground music scene. I talked to David because Matt referred him to me as a super node. He has a large internet presence, has written for music blogs in the past, and is generally very active in the scene. So my name is David Smith. Um, my internet presence and writing name is David Ford Smith. My, my connection to house shows is uh, that currently I 
run a venue in Raleigh with my roommates called the Radio Shack, and we throw shows pretty regularly. I think we're one of like the most active house show venues in the area right now. My history with running house shows is kind of interesting because um, I guess I've always been involved with like DIY culture. Like I grew up in Wilmington and I went to shows in high school and went to many backyard shows that would get like shut down. But I think the reason why I went to a lot of those shows was because in Wilmington uh, there used to be a venue called The Soapbox and it was largely either 18 plus or more often 21 plus. And to get into those venues, you basically either had to have a fake ID or you couldn't get in. And I guess that's mainly what attracted me to DIY shows initially. So when I was younger, DIY shows were always a big part of that for me. David moved to Raleigh when he started college at NC State, where he would eventually work at WKNC, become the music director, and start his own house venue with Matt and their friends. You know, I think the way that most house shows start is you have your friends' bands play. So, like, in Raleigh, it's it would be pretty easy for us to just, like, you know, be like, hey, Ghost Bond is a local Raleigh band. Like, let's book Ghost Bond. But for me, at least, and um, for my roommate, Matt, thanks to the radio station, uh, I guess we were tapped into stuff. I, I had been tapped into stuff through blogs, but I guess through that, I started learning about a lot more national music and, like, sort of the ecosystem that exists on the East Coast of, like, DIY bands and, like, where they tour and... The way it works is basically like you book a couple of them by sending Facebook messages or getting in contact with friends and it's sort of a self-sustaining thing because after a while like you don't even have to try that hard. David has a unique outlook on DIY since he has been involved in the online underground community for years. Before Spotify and Bandcamp, it was generally a lot harder to find out about smaller artists. I was writing for a blog called Decoder because one of my friends uh, helped to run it. It got a lot of attention nationally because I would say between the years of 2008 and maybe 2012, there was a big underground uh, scene of blogs online. Like, internet was getting faster, but it was still kind of difficult to get MP3s, and so you had this whole ecosystem of blogs and websites that would share, like, uh, DIY music. And, like, you know, now we have Bandcamp and we have Spotify, and it's, it's much easier. But back then it was, was literally like, hey, uh, here's an MP3, can you, like, host it on your blog? And Portals was a big website for me. Um, it's just a group of people from all around the country who are really, um, really inspirational to me because they, they all did DIY events in their specific towns. Um, and I guess I respect that. I respect anybody who is going to like look for artists before they have a lot of buzz and make venues for them. Next, I decided to reach out to Miriam Morand, who runs the venue called Shrieking Shack. Although Shrieking Shack was originally a temporary pop-up place for Radio Shack's extra shows, it has an incredibly different vibe. Almost every show I've been to there, or even just heard about, has been crazy. Pieface Girls and Swine, two local Riot Girl punk bands performed there last year for an anti-HB2 concert, performing songs like Pat McCrory is a mother and peeing on the NC flag in protest. The house is laid out so that the kitchen basically becomes the living room, making for a nice open area. The Shrieking Shack Girls have also hosted a few local art and talent showcases, which opens their venue as a platform for more than just local music. I'm Mary Morand, and I'm local music director at WKNC, and I DJ the local beat. And we run a house show venue called Shrieking Shack. I had considered it in the past, but 
like when I got a house, it wasn't the first thing I was going to do or why I got a house. And what happened was this girl who also works at WKNC, Yvonne, her friends she had made when she was living in Seattle were looking to have a show in the area. They're called Ihi. And they're having a hard time booking, I guess, at venues or other house show spots. So she just hit me up and was like, hey, you got a cool house. Would you be willing to host this band? And I was like, sure, we'll give it a go if you got the equipment and all that. And, you know, we booked a local opener, Happy Bannon, and it was just a lot of fun and it went really well. And after that, we just kept them coming. During the interview, Miriam brought up another great point about house shows and DIY in general. I also think house show venues are important for, I guess, giving bands and people who venues or, you know, just wouldn't ordinarily get shows or get their name out, giving them a chance to um, just show their work. I know one thing we did, we had a shrieking showcase, which was a thing where we combined artists in the area as well as musicians of all genres. And it was mostly bands who had were either having their first show or only had a few shows or hadn't really gotten their names out there yet. And they came and played their music. Yeah, and even some of the artists that met each other there, like collaborating now or like people discovered bands that they hadn't known before and people come up to me and are like hey who was that girl that danced she was amazing like people still come up to me and talk about it so yeah I think that's the important thing with DIY spaces is creating a community where anyone can you know come in and enjoy a show or any age or even become a part of it Finally, I got to talk with the guys from the last local venue, the Kosher Hut. Sadly, the Kosher Hut played its last gig in May 2017, but it will live on forever in the hearts of Raleigh music lovers. Kosher Hut was unlike any other music space in Raleigh. It was located in a large barn-sized garage and was decked out with crazy rainbow lights and dark surrealist art on mattresses. Their shows were not your average shows either. I've attended a punk slash drag show and one where an electronic artist wearing a horse mask and sarong fed the crowd chum chum. It's definitely eccentric. Since Kosher Hut is not run by WKNC DJs and sports a slightly different scene, I decided to sit down with the guys who run the place and to talk to them about being musicians and running the most radical venue in the Raleigh area. They're all musicians and came together through a mutual love of music. In fact, the guys didn't even start the Kosher Hut. I'm James Oden. I'm the newest member, but the oldest. My name is Logan Maxwell. Yeah, my name's Tommy Quinn. And my name is Jason Warnoff. And we all live at a place known as the Kosher Hut. It's a DIY kind of underground venue. What I think is probably the most special thing about where we live is that we weren't the first to do it there. We didn't come up with the idea. It just got passed along to us by being in a music community. Or Yeah, essentially, we're just the caretakers of the... And we'll pass it to the next one. Yeah, so each of us are musicians, and then uh, Tommy and myself both went to NC State uh, in the engineering program. So have been longtime listeners of KNC, and basically... 
Tommy found Jason via a Craigslist. Yes. We all love music, play a whole bunch of music, and wanted to foster that environment and continue it. Um, and so when we started to get more involved in being in bands and seeing shows, we found that this was probably the coolest way to go about it. I wasn't planning on playing music at all, and I really wasn't. I didn't think anything of Rally. I didn't think I'd be ever be playing in a band, let alone be a great music scene like there is. I came in sort of late to the whole thing because of I was going through divorce, still am, and I'm a musician, and I was like going, oh my God, who's going to want to live with a musician? <laughs> like a friend of mine got me in touch with Joe Wright, and he was moving out, and so I ended up getting his place at the Kosher Hut, and uh, it's been really great because of, it, interestingly, I'm an acoustic musician mostly, and all these guys are like electric, and they play stuff like Nirvana and, and metal, and but anyway, it's like we're just, it's like, a, it's such a... There's so many ideas bouncing around in that house. It's just really, really wonderful and stuff. And then we have the shows, which is what this show is about. I think that sentiment really sums up the Kosher Hut well. For the Kosher Hut guys, DIY isn't just about creating music. It's about fostering an environment where you meet people you wouldn't normally talk to, you witness unusual performances, and you make a positive difference in the community. Each one of us books our own shows, and essentially it's your decision to do what you want to do. Obviously, we have our norms of everything, but every time I personally want to book a show, I always want all of it to go to ACLU, Planned Parenthood Charity, or Safe NC. That's just the very least, I think, we could do as musicians right now is create the platform. And, I mean, the money's important, you know, but seeing people there talking about it, having a like mind uh, is important, too. But I think something we'd like to do is... Um, Try just the, the unity theme thing. Just have instead of having different bills dedicated to one genre of music or one kind of inclusion, uh, I think we want to have like we are this shows of North Carolina and have blend all those eclectic bills into one bill. And um, the musicians meet each other, wouldn't normally meet each other. Different fan bases meet each other, they wouldn't usually meet each other. It's crazy, but everybody's still gonna have a great time. As I mentioned, the guys all met through the hut and by being musicians. As one could guess, being a musician is one of the best ways in DIY culture to meet other musicians and form connections. Well, if you play in a band and you play with other bands, eventually you're, there you go, oh, we played this spot in X city or whatever. And you're like, oh, wow, that's cool. And so eventually it all comes through the bands we played with. It's not DIY related at first, but then they go, oh, well, we, you know, run a little DIY spot too. So there you guys, that connection. So it helps to be in a band and play with other bands. It really does. It's all the human connection. So we've started plotting a map of the East Coast, essentially, of places. We've got uh, Virginia, Washington, D.C., now New York, and I think Jason's working on the Philly connection. Yeah, well, all the DIY spaces in all these places, I'm pretty sure they all know of each other. Yeah. But it's all just people connection. No one has any, like, sites or anything. I think it is really cool that the Kosher Hut is connected to venues across the country, all through the modern version of word of mouth. As Jason said, DIY is a wide web. I found the Kosher Hut guys to be inspirational. They run a DIY space because they love the music and the people in the community, which when you get down to it, has been at the center of DIY since its genesis. We might serve a different niche. We might serve a different need than a, than a typical venue. I mean, we really might. I think we cultivate so. the next like group of kids and people who are going up and to see the shows. They might mm -hmm. not ever get into it because they just don't want to go out to the bars or whatever. 
but they come to a house slash venue and they see a band that blows their mind. So after talking to DIY venue owners, some of my questions were answered. I was definitely right about social media playing a strong role in the connections made in the underground music scene. Obviously, it's not completely necessary. You can make good connections just by attending house shows and local shows around your area, word of mouth, or by writing or following music blogs, but it definitely makes it easier. Social media has revolutionized most of our forms of communication. It makes sense that it would be the same way for bands. I also learned that just putting your foot in the water of your local music scene can be a phenomenal way to meet bands and music lovers alike. The more you put yourself out there and commit to enjoying and helping DIY music prosper, the more people you'll meet who can help you make that goal a reality. I have half the story. Obviously, it's crucial to talk to the people that book and run the shows, but what about the bands that play the shows? I sat down with some of the members of a few of my favorite local bands from around the Raleigh area, Kelly of Echo Courts and Sierra, Lucas, and Zach from Socrates. First, I caught up with the beloved local band, Echo Quartz. I spoke with Kelly the guitarist. Kelly got his start in DIY while working for UNCG's radio station, WUAG. My name is Kelly and I play guitar and sing in a band called Echo Quartz. When I was a kid, I moved from New York to um, Raleigh with my family when I was like 15. And, um, you know, like, just didn't really know anybody. So um, I was like, hey, I guess I'll just like try to learn how to play the guitar. I wasn't actually in a band until college, but that's how I started like playing music and got really interested in it and stuff. This particular band, I started it with my friend Jacob in Greensboro. You know, we just like started recording and then we were like, oh, we should like play a show too. But I think like maybe the second show ever we played was at King's in Raleigh. He was able to form connections in Greensboro by being a DJ and attending house shows, which would eventually help him start several bands and book shows in Greensboro and Raleigh. After graduating from college, Kelly stayed in the Greensboro area and eventually formed Echo Quartz. At first, he never wanted to play gigs in his hometown, but after a while, he realized that playing and booking shows in your own town was a great way to meet other bands and make connections around the country. When they graduate from college, most people like move out and it's not like they like stop playing music altogether. So you can kind of like tap on them and be like, hey, like trying to book a show in Providence. And unless they're just like totally not into helping you, they can at least be like, oh, we'll hit up this guy, you know? And like, it, a lot of it is just like blind Facebook messages. And usually, people will get back to you. Actually, like half the time. But you just have to have like a list and you know, you like you sit there. It's like office work, really. It's impossible to field all of those like inquiries, you know? I mean, we haven't played a show in like eight months and I still probably every week get somebody that's like, hey, we're coming through. But especially when I was like really into booking shows, I was like booking shows just for venues in Greensboro sometimes if I felt like it. You know, trying to hook people up with shows in town, even if we couldn't play. Then it's just like the floodgates kind of open. You know, you can always like network wherever you go. I think that like as long as your goal isn't simply advancing yourself. I was always stoked to like help bands out. Just like don't be a jerk. <laughs> then people will like you and uh, you'll end up playing shows and stuff. Kelly has an unparalleled viewpoint as he has been a college DJ, part of a band and a super note. 
Sierra. I'm Lucas. Three, two, one. And we're soccer teams. <laughs> so we got started as a band. So Zach and I were in um, Introduction to Entrepreneurial Thinking. And we were supposed to put together a project where we introduced ourselves and all of our talents and abilities and put it in a slideshow. And Zach and I happened to be sitting next to each other on the day when we were supposed to have our like dream teams together. And we had never met each other. Uh, we got together with a like a super senior math major and like a business major and we ended up ripping off um, Campus Movie Fest. Yep. But we did it for high schoolers uh, and that was our entrepreneurial project. <laughs> on one of the last nights that we were like working on the project, we like showed each other mu the music that we were listening to individually and it kind of matched up and then he learned that I played music and then I learned that he played music. And uh, that summer was the first time we got together. And then Sierra came a couple months later. I was playing drums originally, and then we were at a Museum Mouth show at Nice Price, and Zach introduced me to Sierra, and he was like, oh, she plays drums. We Our first show was at the station in Carborough. No, yeah, so like uh, we did that one show at the station, and then basically it was like Matt Brown and Radio Shack. Yeah, and then like uh, we also played at like Slim's uh, in downtown Raleigh. Yeah, this band came through twice called Eureka California. We played with them uh, and they gave us kind of the chance to actually play in real venues. Um, we, But they got us on <laughs> Athens Pop Fest and then we went down there and played and stayed at their house. So we, we owe everything to, <laughs> to Eureka California. <laughs> Very nice people. Right off the bat, I learned from Socrates that it helps to have connections to play shows. It gave them an in and a place to get their name and music out. Just as in the Manchester music scene in the early 80s, it takes more than just gig connections to be a successful band. So we played at Slim's and like, this was like, the, I think this is the first time we had played like a venue show together and I still had no idea how to do any any of this. Eureka California's upstairs and we, we just went up there and started talking to them and like we ended up having like a good conversation and then after our sets we hung out a little bit and so after that we just kind of stayed in touch and Anytime they come through down here, we'll set up a gig for them anytime they help us out down there. And so it's just it's really cool because we just met randomly at Slim's and they're really cool people. They search for Raleigh on Bandcamp. I don't know if they do this for like all their shows, but they just found us and we were like, so they messaged us, like emailed us from Bandcamp. We just like hit it off. It's just a referral system. You know, I don't think a lot of people get shows just from having recorded music we definitely got our first show like because sierra is a, a dj here band to band connections are so important diy bands especially understand the necessary symbiotic dynamic in the music world in the end everybody won it's interesting that 30 years later and in a completely different environment that the diy scene still holds the same core values of the punks however it's not surprising DIY punk was invented as a way to avoid and reject the commercialism of the music industry at the time. I see little difference between the Manchester punks and the Raleigh indie heads. When I talked to David, he mentioned that live music in 2017 was made to sell alcohol. That struck a chord with me. Like it or not, commercial top 40 music is made to sell. That doesn't make it any better or worse than DIY, but it does carry a contrastive vibe to the DIY world. The DIY scene in Raleigh is not looking to make money. In fact, everyone involved knows that this will probably never be profitable, but it's not about the money, the fame, or the glory. 
It's about hanging out with people of similar interests and enjoying and supporting good local art. Yes, I got my answers. I learned how bands and bookers alike make their connections. I learned it's not the scene that makes the connections the beautiful homemade melange that it is. It's the connections that make the scene worthwhile. It's what the punks had that Top 40 never will. A group of people dedicated to the love of music and a common goal of sharing it with others, so much so that they are willing to make sacrifices and help those around them make it happen. Going forward, I hope to continue to foster Raleigh DIY culture. It's so much more than hosting any old college party. You're creating an inclusive space to share music and art with your community of friends. Yes, going to house shows is fun, but with each new venue and each show hosted, we've helped to create the Raleigh living room experience. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. Uh, we are going to now take a second to update everyone on the state of the venues since this documentary originally uh, aired. Uh, Radio Shack, as previously discussed in the documentary, is now out of commission. They uh, played their last show recently. It was uh, it was fun. It was like a good show. It was part of a three-night thing, but... Oh, and Shrieking Shack is also gone. And it's Kosher been gone Hunt. for a while, unfortunately. Yeah, we're all very sad about that. But we do have some new ones popping up in the area. So there's still some potential for the scene to recover, and the uh, the old players are still in the game. So The scene's still there. It's just new places, new venues, new people. But that's the nature of, of DIY. And, you know, people, older people who I talk to, you know, they had... They talked about the mattress for Like, that hasn't been here for years. So oh, yeah. It's just the nature of DIY. Yeah, old ones pop out, new ones pop in, but that's how it goes. So uh, now we're going to take a second to talk about three quick stories real quick. Uh, this one's not so much a story, just a disclaimer and a little bit of discussion and thoughts. Uh, this upcoming year, uh, bikes, bicycles are going to be required to be registered with NCSU's Department of Transportation if you live on campus and have a bicycle or you have a bicycle stored somewhere on campus. Uh, why they're requiring it, not currently known, uh, not anyone that we talk to about that just kind of popped up on their website recently thought it was interesting my guess for why they're doing it uh likely because the rate of bicycles getting stolen on campus is still you know very high uh they've had those decoy bikes for a while now with uh the lock that activates and calls the police if you cut it and you're they got the signs up and stuff warning you not to try it but i don't think that's been particularly successful and they don't have them all over campus so it's not like you know I do know that they have highly suggested doing this for years, bicycle registration, that is, um, but it's never been mandatory until now. I guess they're just really trying to crack down on, you know, theft. Could also be that they're just sick of people parking their bikes in places that they're not supposed to be and want to issue tickets for that. Who knows? But That's true. I know they highly discourage uh, putting it on rails since I used to do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And on to the next thing. Uh from the News and Observer, it will look and sound like a war in 19 NC counties. It's supposed to. Uh, basically, we're going to have some special forces training going through various counties in NC. Uh, it is all a reenactment of war. Essentially, there's going to be blanks fired, flares fired. Uh, but there are, quote, controls in place to ensure there is no risk to persons or property. Uh the Special Warfare Center and school said it has coordinated all planned movements and events with officials in each county. So this is uh, pretty well planned out, but it's going to be a realistic uh, war training program for people selected to enter the Special Forces. The participating counties, and this is scheduled to end on August 17th, uh, when it starts, I do not know. I think it'll be the first. Yes, the first. 
Uh, participating counties include Alamance, Anson, Cavaris, Chatham, Cumberland, Davidson, Davie, Guilford, Hoke, Lee, Montgomery, Moore, Randolph, Richmond, Robeson, Rowan, Scotland, Stanley, and Union. So if you live in one or more of those counties, uh, you may experience part of this uh, training exercise, which might be cool. Apparently, they're going to bring in some Blackhawks. Uh, you may get to hear those uh, big old military-grade helicopters, so that'll be interesting. And then on the side here, we have uh, bail bond reform. Uh, essentially, the Orange County uh, court is considering bail bond reform after a... or in addition to like this screening that is going on right now of a movie called The Bail Trap, uh, which was locally produced. And it is all about how bail bonds uh, are unfair on minorities and uh, the lower class, you know, people who have less money. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot of different stuff that's going on right now with that. Uh, people considering change and reform to the system, how it uh, adversely affects minorities. Um, so that's happening. <laughs> Talking in circles about it here. Not a whole lot more to add than that. It is interesting, though. Uh, this is apparently an ongoing issue uh, within Orange County, specifically for bail bonds and discrimination. So uh, be cool to see if some reform comes from that, if new policies arrive, uh, whatnot. But I think that about does it. Uh, anything to add to that, Marissa? Nope. I think you summed it up very well. All right, cool. Sorry if we rushed through that. We're uh, getting a little short for time here. Thought we would have more time for discussion, but had to start late. So we apologize for that. But that does about do it for this week's show. We appreciate you joining us on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon, assuming you've been listening to this live. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show and every other show was Connie by L1011. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle week after next as we continue our bi-weekly summer programming schedule. Yep, I'll be gone that week, but Marissa will be here to man the helm. Uh, once again, be sure to catch us again two weeks from now on Tuesday. Uh, what is that going to be? Uh, I think the 13th, August 13th. August 13th, yeah. Thanks again for listening in. Uh, you know the drill. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time.